Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Lee, co-host of Allergy Talk. Based on your feedback, each Allergy Watch review episode will now be offering continuing medical education. In order to get your CME, we'll provide the details on our Allergy Talk website. That's college.acaai.org slash allergy talk. And of course, with any new initiative, we'd love your feedback. You can give us feedback at our email address, which is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three more articles from the November-December 2019 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. To subscribe to Allergy Watch, head over to college. .acaai.org slash publications slash allergy watch. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to introduce another episode of Allergy Talk. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor of allergy immunology at Emory University. And as always, I'm joined by my cohort, Marin Kangala. Hi, I'm Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And then the third chair, as always, uh, I'm accompanied by Dr. Stan Feynman. Uh, thanks, Jerry, and uh, it's great to be here. I'm uh, the current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch and a past president of the college. So this is a very timely episode because we are pretty much one week out at, as of this recording for the FDA approval of the new, well, the first FDA-approved peanut oral immunotherapy pelforzia. So I chose this um, article from the, um, that was reviewed in Allergy Watch by uh, John Oppenheimer. It's from Lancet, and it was published in June of 2019 in Lancet, and it's entitled Oral Immunotherapy for Peanut Allergy, or PACE, P-A-C-E, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Efficacy and Safety. And what the group uh, of authors did is they basically uh, looked at um, Medline, and they you know, looked at various uh, databases and found 12 trials that uh, showed oral immunotherapy versus no immunotherapy and, um, and, and analyzed, you know, those uh, studies to see, you know, what, you know, what the results were in terms of inducing anaphylaxis. And what they found was that the studies that the patients who had uh, oral immunotherapy had an increased risk for anaphylaxis with a risk ratio of 3.12 versus those patients who had no oral immunotherapy. They also found that the frequency of anaphylaxis increased with a risk ratio of 2.72 in those who had active oral immunotherapy versus the patients who had no immunotherapy. There was also an uh, increase of the epinephrine use, uh, almost double, with a risk ratio of 2.21, uh, compared to those who had no oral immunotherapy. And then um, there was no difference uh, in the uh, incidence of anaphylaxis in either the buildup phase or the maintenance phase uh, when they analyzed all of these studies. So the overall, the oral immunotherapy group 
had an increase of serious adverse events of 1.92, which is almost uh, double that compared to those who had no oral immunotherapy. And although in terms of effectiveness, the oral immunotherapy was effective because the oral immunotherapy group had an increased likelihood of passing an in-office oral challenge of 12.42. So clearly, uh, the oral immunotherapy is effective, but there were these higher incidents of, uh, of uh, anaphylactic episodes compared to those who did not. Now, overall, the quality of life, which you know compares the, the group who had oral immunotherapy versus who did not, they could not find any significant difference in either group. Uh, which I think is really important. We'll have to talk a little bit more about that. So uh, the bottom line is that we have to determine a patient-centered endpoint for peanut allergy. In other words, is it anaphylaxis with an unplanned exposure or, you know, giving a daily dose of peanut protein and, you know, potentially having a little higher risk of, uh, of uh, reactions? Uh, the authors estimate that the baseline historical incidence of reactions to peanut is 71 per thousand patients. But with peanut oral immunotherapy, the incidence rises to 1.51 per thousand patients. So it doubles when you get peanut oral immunotherapy. So what the authors of the study said was that some patients, especially anxious parents, may benefit from these from exchanging the occasional accidental reaction away from home for more frequent reactions at home, you know, in a con- more controlled situation. And I think that uh, Dr. Oppenheimer's uh, comment was really the best. And his quote is that peanut oral immunotherapy is the poster child for shared decision making. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Dr. Oppenheimer's assessment. I, uh, you know, I've thought very long and hard about that conversation. And again, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the shared decision-making conversation for peanut oral immunotherapy. I think up front, everyone can agree that, you know, this is not intended as a cure. And I think certainly that's up front and should be a component of every conversation. What really, I think, I'd love to get everyone else's opinion on are the other nuance of the benefit to the family. And so, you know, the, the considerations that I could imagine could be happening is that, you know, the parents want to do the best thing for their child. They want their child to be safe. But at the same time, there's consequences in safety. Um, and, this, and what I mean by consequences in safety is, you know, you can be very successful in avoidance by not letting your child do anything. Right, you. I mean, that is a way to treat peanut allergy, of uh, avoiding activities or anything that could put your child at risk. So, you know, for the patients where that level of avoidance is driven by anxiety or so on, then it does make sense that this treatment would be an option to address their concerns. But, but you know, the the, the root cause of avoidance for me, is still not clear because, you know, there are situations where there's perceived risk, but the risk is probably not as high 
real life than it is perceived. And that would be smell, that would be touching. There's very well-designed studies where they've, we've tried to convince parents that those low-level exposures, either through the smell of the peanut or touching of the skin, actually would be at low risk. And, you know, there's those definite studies that looked at that. So if we think about how do we mitigate the anxiety about food allergy and help them with how to manage avoidance, but also allow them to have a normal life as possible. If the treatment, you know, it's quoted to be like $10,000 a year, what alternative therapy would have the equivalent cost that could address that therapy? And that's always what I wonder in my mind. Is this the best use of healthcare dollars to address that specific problem in food allergy. I know that was kind of a convoluted thing. I hope I, hope, I, hope I explained myself well. Well, you know, what you're talking about is really uh, quality of life. Yes. And what, what is, how much are you willing to, not you, but how much is someone willing to spend to get an improved quality of life? And quite frankly, when we started uh, the uh, study where we, we did, in fact, uh, study the Alforzia product uh, several years ago, when we started it, uh, parents were scared, and they really are scared about the potential for a life-threatening reaction. And they uh, really, you know, want to do everything they can to protect their child from that, even if it means having some of these reactions. Now, as we all know, in the uh, Palforzia study, about 11% of the patients dropped out because of uh, reactions, and uh, which is fairly high, you know, when you think about most therapeutic uh, uh, studies, but. Um, you know, this is a different kind of a situation. I think that uh, food allergy, especially peanut allergy, uh, there is a lot of anxiety. And, um, uh, you know, I think that you do have to make sure the parents understand when they start a therapy like this that there is a risk for reaction, that it's just, you know, it's it, you have to weigh the risk and benefits. I mean, we do that every day with all of our patients, weigh the risk and benefits of a, of a therapeutic intervention. We just need to make sure the parents understand that going forward when we offer this type of therapy for them. And we've been doing this shared decision-making process for not just oral immunotherapy, but also just allergen-specific immunotherapy for a long time, like subcutaneous immunotherapy, where, and where we recognize clearly that doing immunotherapy comes at a cost of, with an increased risk of anaphylaxis. And so I just don't see how this is very different, except that clearly the anaphylactic reactions are happening at home as opposed to a more um, controlled medical environment. But the study, I, I remember reading this when it first came out last year, and I wasn't very, I guess, shocked by the results because it's what we would, exp I, th I thought it's what we would expect. And it's something that we sort of explained at the onset that allergen immunotherapy of any kind would be associated with an increased risk of having an allergic reaction. You're right. Although with our, uh, you know, with our inhalant uh, immunotherapy, um, usually there's a, a change, you know, in terms of sensitivity, and most of the time people can stop it at some point. We right. still don't know about sustained unresponsiveness in the situation with uh, peanut allergy. Right. I mean, and, and well, hopefully, newer, safer treatments for food allergy are also on the horizon. So. Yeah. I mean. You know, this comes up also like, is this going to be forever? And I, as Brian said before, well, it can't be. This can't be the only treatment that we're ever mm -hmm. going to devise for food allergy. You know, we're going to start here. 
But clearly, you know, there's going to have to be something better than this. And, you know, that's why it's so incredible um, how, at least here in our institution and others, you know, the community has rallied around and has funded research to answer some of these these questions. And so, again, we're the, there, there is a role for this therapy, but clearly we understand there's multiple foods out there. There's obviously the side effect issue. You know, clearly there's better opportunities to improve the safety and the effectiveness of this therapy. Absolutely. And, and you know, really I, what you said about the increase in our knowledge and the increase in resources and funding going towards food allergy research, we've made incredible progress over the last few years. And the fact that there's now an FDA-approved product is, is, is remarkable. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish in this whole field, and I think that uh, we're going to be able to offer patients you know, uh, some therapeutic options. All right. Well, um, Maren, why don't you take the next article? You're going to talk about operative anaphylaxis. Right. So I am going to discuss a paper that was published out of France in the journal Allergy last year and was reviewed by John Oppenheimer in Allergy Watch. And this study tried to figure out the optimal way to measure tryptase in the perioperative setting of an allergic reaction. And they compared four different algorithms to measure tryptase in a retrospective fashion. And tryptase levels are critical for the diagnosis of perioperative anaphylaxis because clinical criteria that we typically use may not be specific or even relevant in the setting. And the diagnosis of perioperative anaphylaxis can be missed or delayed because the patient is usually intubated, sedated, draped. Early cutaneous signs and typical symptoms are not easily delineated. Further, isolated hypotension or cardiovascular collapse without any skin symptoms can be the initial presentation of intraoperative anaphylaxis. And thus, in the surgical setting, it's important to consider anaphylaxis for unexplained hypotension, unexplained bronchospasm that doesn't respond to usual therapy, and the importance of measuring both acute as well as baseline tryptase levels has been highlighted previously in the setting. However, serial tryptase determination is seldom implemented. The main objective of this study was to determine the diagnostic performance of paired acute as well as baseline tryptase levels, as well as optimal sampling times for the diagnosis of perioperative anaphylaxis. And they looked at the diagnostic performances of three different algorithms for tryptase measurements, as well as just the manufacturer's cutoff for serum tryptase to diagnose perioperative anaphylaxis. The first algorithm was the international consensus equation to determine a clinically significant rise in the acute above baseline level of tryptase using an acute serum tryptase level greater than 1.2 times the baseline tryptase plus 2 to confirm significant mast cell granulation. And other algorithms used were empirical thresholds that is greater than 1.35 times the baseline tryptase and the baseline tryptase plus 3. This was a retrospective study of about 100 adult patients with a perioperative reaction suggestive of anaphylaxis over six years. And they looked specifically at those patients for whom at least two different tryptase levels had been performed both acutely and at baseline. And the diagnosis of anaphylaxis was based on symptoms suggestive of severe systemic hypersensitivity at least grades 3 or 4. 
The diagnosis of perioperative anaphylaxis was confirmed in 76 of these patients. And adequate tryptase level sampling for acute anaphylaxis was performed in almost all patients within about two hours following symptom initiation. And the degree of uh, compliance with a follow-up baseline tryptase more than 24 hours after resolution was only at about 84%. But overall, paired tryptase levels were available in 85 patients, and the most effective algorithm for the accurate diagnosis of perioperative anaphylaxis was the international consensus recommendation that the acute tryptase level should be greater than 1.2 times the baseline tryptase plus 2, which was considered a clinically significant rise with a positive predictive value of 94% and 86% specificity. And this algorithm achieves good sensitivity even when the acute tryptase is normal as per the manufacturer cutoff of 11.4. And 42% of this cohort had normal acute tryptase levels based on manufacturer cutoff. In general, a higher acute tryptase level reflected a greater severity of anaphylaxis. And in conclusion, the authors validated this international consensus equation on mast cell activation in the context of perioperative anaphylaxis with a high specificity as well as positive predictive value for IgE-mediated reactions. But using manufacturer cutoffs, the specificity of elevated mast cell tryptase can be extremely variable, and this has been reproduced in other studies. And therefore, serial mast cell tryptase measurements, as well as accurate documentation of signs and symptoms in all cases of suspected perioperative anaphylaxis is of paramount importance, and the timing of acute as well as baseline tryptase sampling is again extremely relevant and ideally should be measured between 30 to 2 hours following the onset of symptoms for acute and at least 24 hours later for baseline levels. I have a question. You see a number of patients who've uh-huh. had a history of anaphylaxis right. on the OR. Uh, do, are they getting the tryptase levels? I mean, and what are the timings that you recommend that they do? Right. Um, so at Emory... I'm ashamed to admit that we typically only perform acute tryptase levels, but after I read this article, I am definitely going to recommend a baseline level 24 hours later as well, because I mean, clearly 42% of patients in this cohort would have been missed if baseline levels were not performed. That is so interesting. Yes, I would say that um, if the, I mean, there's no rule of thumb, but if the tryptase levels on the lower side, I said, okay, well, that's Mm -hmm. pretty much probably not anaphylaxis. Right. Now, there, I remember there was one girl I saw with um, catamenial anaphylaxis due to her period that her peak tryptase, I think, was like eight eight or nine, mm-hmm. and her baseline was like two or three or something right. like that. So, like, I, I think, yeah, now in retrospect, yeah. if I did that, I would have been in deep trouble, but it's just because I was working her up, that's why we did that baseline, but I, I could see that could be missed, certainly if we use the normal range. Right. Yeah. Right. So so that's definitely a practice change that I'm going to be making after reading this paper. Good. I think, you know, and I, again, this has got a lot of good positive predictive value, but again, mm-hmm. negative, you know, I don't know, not necessarily. Right. But, but Sandy, you asked a key question. Obviously, they consult us after the event. We really need our anesthesiologist to help us out and get that 
right. that acute trip days. Right. Well, they, mm-hmm. we just need to tell them. All right. Um, so I think we'll close it out on the lighter side. Um, I, I find myself getting in my, myself in trouble a lot. So I'm going to declare a dis, make a disclosure here. Um, I am not a pet lover. Um, and so for anyone in the audience who um, is uh, not happy with how I talk about pets, uh, you can give me feedback, but don't put that in our iTunes rating. I'm sorry. But uh, so, so here is an interesting article about hypoallergenic pets. We get that question a lot. You know, can I get a, you know, a hypoallergenic dog or a cat or so on? You know, the, the pet doesn't shed. You know, we have very well-designed studies looking at allergen content of these supposed hypoallergic pets and see that, you know, for the dog that doesn't shed, they probably have higher allergen content right. in their pelt than not lower. But... Um, you know, this company here, and again, I have no relationship with the company, is trying a novel approach in order to address, uh, you know, the desires of allergic patients to uh, have their pets. Um, and so this company called HypoPet, they have designed a virus-like particle. Basically, you modify the major allergen in cat, FELD1, so it has a cysteine residual residue that sticks to this viral-like particle. So they construct this basically delivery system on this uh, circular virus-like particle that actually has um, tetanus-derived, uh, toxin-derived T-cell epitopes to also be sort of like an adjuvant, right, to kind of activate the immune system. And actually also have um, um, microbial RNA, so that will also activate TLR seven and eight. So, you know, they're really making this cucumber mosaic virus derived particle where they attach FELD1 in order to induce antibodies against their own allergen. So what they're trying to do is make cats make immune uh, antibody specific uh, IgG against their own allergen FELD1 and potentially decrease um, its uh, secretion. So essentially uh, what they did was they had about a cohort of 50-some cats, and they sort of analyzed this different ways. They essentially just took this novel derived particle and um, uh, injected it into the hind legs at three-week intervals. And, you know, they did various studies to uh, validate its effectiveness. They looked at uh, IgG production against FELD1. They looked at FELD1's ability to uh, uh, bind uh, IgG, meaning does the recombinant FELD1 act the same as natural FELD1 allergen? Um, They looked at the persistence of IgG production. So for example, they tried to add a second adjuvant called saponin, and that didn't seem to make a difference. They did booster injections um, and it seemed that even if you did a booster injection, there didn't seem to be much of a difference um, in terms of the persistence of IgG levels. And then they did a couple interesting ways in order to ask the question, does it um, seem to uh, reduce uh, allergenicity? And so they did this in uh, an in vitro method. They use 
CD63 expression on a basophile activation study. Um, they also looked at indirect uh, ELISAs, um, looking at uh, IgE uh, against FELD1. And they also uh, did epitope mapping to look at if the antibodies do seem to um, bind and release from uh, the FELD1 protein. And what it seems to suggest is, is that um, it does seem to be very similar to native FELD1. It does seem to make a robust antibody response in the cats, despite it being an endogenous protein. And that one in, in a mouse model where they looked at um, uh, inhibition of a skin test uh, by injecting it into a mouse. So they took the mouse IgG that was produced against FELD1 and to see if they could prevent um, a mouse from reacting to cat allergen. It seemed to be effective. Um, they also noticed that the FELD1 levels, because the cat were making these uh, antibodies, were reduced in cat tears. They sort of did like a Schirmer-like test on cats, and they had decreased FELD1 secretion. So taken together, um, it seems like maybe one of the ways to make a hypoallergenic cat potentially in the future could be giving your cat allergy shots. Basically, you deliver this mm -hmm. vaccine. They induce an Ig response against their own allergen. And, the, you know, the paper seems to state that FELD1 despite being the major allergen for cats, doesn't seem to be a necessary protein for cat, at least that they um, look, have followed these cats and they've not seen any adverse reactions in the cat um, in terms of you know, their behavior or, or health or so on. So it's possible that um, it's a dispensable protein and, and therefore perhaps um, instead of us giving the shots to the human, um, maybe, you know, the, the sh if we give the shots to the animal, they'll take care of it. Now, there are doing um, preliminary trials in dog. So mm -hmm. if you go to the website, they got like cat pictures and dog pictures. They pick the cutest photos to, <laughs> to kind of, you know, advertise their product there. Um, but I just thought that was just sort of an, a novel approach uh, to uh, address this. Now, again, I have not seen anything since this article came out last year, so I don't know where they are with this. But um, I just think it's it's interesting that, um, you know, to my knowledge, um, every, the nine, I would say 99.9% .9 of the patients who I've said they have a pet allergy, they're like, okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about even patients who have severe eosinophilic asthma on multiple medications, um, when I tell them I have cat allergy, they're like saying, okay. And, it, and you know, we're talking like tons of medicine, and they're like, okay with it. So, again, there's, there is this very close relationship people have with their animals, and the people are willing to do all sorts of things in order to have to maintain that relationship. As you can see, my bias is being unshowed. Well, you definitely, uh, you know, qualified, and I'm glad you stated that. I, I do happen to like pets, and, okay. uh, although I must say I'm a dog person. I'm not really a cat person. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the concept of, 
uh, you know, blocking antibodies. I mean, uh, allergy immunotherapy, we produced, I mean, that was our, initially, way back when, uh, they felt that blocking antibodies were the main uh, effectiveness in terms of uh, our own allergen immunotherapy. Now we know there's, you know, uh, effects on the regulatory cells and cytokines, et cetera. But um, this whole concept, I think, is fascinating, and uh, and I look forward to see more, more data on it. I mean, I would certainly prefer to recommend uh, the patients give their animal a shot than to give... Uh, you know, their child or their, uh, you know, somebody in their mm-hmm. family a shot. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but it w- it's also going to be interesting to see whether this actually translates into reduced allergy symptoms in the owners and not just reduced levels of shedding. Right. Because it's just, I mean, if you think, Feldy one is just so potent that I would imagine that it wouldn't take much mm. to induce symptoms. So it really, I guess, would depend on just to what level shedding is decreased. Yeah, you have to hit a yeah. threshold of reduction, right. probably be effectiveness, yeah. and it's possible that they'll hit a wall, maybe. Well, we've you know we've done studies where uh, we've been in uh, uh, cat homes basically, and uh, uh, we did a study in one of the cat shelters uh, where we did exposure. In other words, you had patients go into the shelter uh, to have exposure to the uh, FLD1 and, and to check symptoms and to check a therapeutic response. So there are models for that. You know the challenge chambers, mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I think there's a lot of potential opportunity and. I hope they continue with their research. They, they apparently are. I just went to the website okay. that, that you were talking about. And yes, they have a description of their efforts that's really designed to kind of tug at the heartstrings. Um, and the cutest little cats and dogs ever. But it looks like they're right now in sort of phase three clinical trials. And their goal is to get HypoCat on the market in a couple of years. And HypoDog, as you said, is in the pipeline. <laughs> so, again... Uh, uh, maybe something all for our pet lovers to look forward to Um, and again with that I think we'll end today's episode Uh, again I really appreciate all the feedback uh, we've received through the through our email address that's allergytalk at acaai.org and the kind reviews we received please again give us our feedback we do want to make this uh, a useful podcast for the allergy community and as well uh, don't forget that this episode will be certified for continuing medical education so please uh, complete the documentation um, uh, we do want to make sure that uh Uh, You do get credit for listening to the episode. Um, And we will see you for the next episode. Have a wonderful day, everybody. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.